Sometimes I just feel like disappearing. Tracy Bratt Smith recalls a conversation with her son, Mason Smith, about a year before where he tells her this. The conversation was an emotional one, but it was also a very open one between a mother and her son. Mason explained to his mother how he struggled with certain things. Mason was known to go through depressive phases or episodes, and in Canada, he was targeted and bullied by his classmates. Mason struggled with a speech impediment his whole life, and he had a somewhat rocky relationship with his father, Darren. Now, these are somewhat typical struggles of being a teenager, trying to find your way and who you are. And I'm sure that Mason was navigating through that awkward stage of still being a teen, but wanting to be a man and not just a man, but his own man and figure out who he was. Hello and welcome to the TCC podcast. I am LB and this is the True Crime Chronicles. If this is your first time finding me, welcome. If you have been here before, then welcome back. I am so happy that you're here. Be sure to follow me so you never miss an episode. Like, comment, share, leave a rating, all the categories. It's quick and it's free and it would help me out a lot. It also helps to get the stories of the missing out to more people, provide a greater reach and spread more awareness about their cases. So it would be greatly appreciated. I also want to thank you so much for your patience with this episode. It ended up being a much more involved case than I expected. Then I was sick with an awful flu that I'm still kind of struggling to get over. So I apologize for the delay. But again, thank you for your patience. So Mason tells his mother if he is ever going to run away, it's going to be to California. California for whatever reason, represented a lot to Mason. So Tracy tells her son that she hopes he never runs away. But 17-year-old Mason had other plans. The three days prior to Mason running away were very rocky. And I think it's clear that Mason had been contemplating leaving home for quite some time. So what was the catalyst the morning of September 1st, 2015 for 17-year-old Mason Smith to just walk out of his home not get on the school bus, not go to school. And to this point, as of November of 2023, to never return home again. It's definitely a case that will leave you with questions. Did Mason leave on his own? Did he even leave at all? There have been several possible sightings in California, but how reliable are they? Was the dad involved? The dad, Darren, he had been back home only three days before Mason's disappearance. And they had a very rocky relationship. And there were disagreements on all three days that his father had been back home. So where is Mason Smith? Mason Darren Smith was born April 7th, 1998 in American Fork, Utah to parents Tracy and Darren Smith. Now, even though he was born in Utah, most of Mason's life was spent in Alberta, Canada. Mason was born into a religious household. Mom Tracy was a devout Mormon, and she raised her kids as active members of the LDS Church. Now, LDS is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The father, Darren, however, was agnostic, or having no real belief in a religion or a god of any type, so just not faith-believing. And I do find that to be an interesting combination I don't know that I think anything specific of it necessarily as it relates to Mason's disappearance, just that it was an odd combination. Mason was the youngest of six children, so he was the baby. And he was also the only one of his siblings that were still living at home when he went missing. 
I don't have a lot of information about the siblings. I actually don't even have information about all of the siblings, but I was able to find very minimal information about the three youngest siblings. So the sibling that was closest in age to Mason was his sister, Raceylin, and she was 19 or 20 in September of 2016. And she was also the closest to him as far as a sibling bond as well. She was the one who lived at home with Mason the longest, you know, more so than the other siblings. They were quite a bit older. And she loved her brother. She doted on him. Mason's brother, Dallin, was 22. And he had an older sister, Kaylee, that was 24. Now, again, there are two other siblings, but I don't have any of their information. And I looked, but I couldn't find it. With Mason being the youngest, he didn't have to do anything. His older siblings doted on him. They did pretty much everything for him. And as a toddler, Mason developed a speech impediment that would affect him for his whole life up until he disappeared. He took speech therapy lessons when he was younger, which did help, but it didn't take it away completely. And Tracy said while his five older siblings' first words were all dad, Mason's first word was mom. She said that he was a very big mama's boy. And the speech impediment that Mason suffered from was aphasia. Aphasia is a disorder of language resulting from damage to the parts of the brain that manage the language. Aphasia affects a child's ability to use words, to express ideas, and to understand the speech of other people. So someone with aphasia may speak in short or incomplete sentences. They can speak in sentences that don't make sense. They can substitute one word for another one or one sound for another. Or they could just speak completely unrecognizable words. Now, with Mason being the baby of the family, oftentimes the baby, especially with multiple older siblings, they're used to people doing stuff for them. And this can stunt his autonomy and independence. And I do know his mother, Tracy, said a lot of times if he wanted something, he would just kind of point at it or not say the full word or not really make an attempt to say the correct word because his siblings would know what he meant and they would just do it for him or get the item for him. So the aphasia made Mason very hard to understand as a child when he would speak. On the investigation Discovery disappeared episode two of season eight, Tracy said she could not understand Mason as a toddler and as a young child when he would speak. In fact, the only person who could understand him was his sister, Raceylin. She was basically his translator for the family, which was part of the reason that these siblings were so close. Tracy would describe Mason's speech as sometimes being very slurred. She also referenced it as sounding very close to the speech pattern of someone who was deaf. And unfortunately, this left Mason pretty vulnerable to being bullied. And kids can be so mean at times, like they can really suck. And he had a hard time throughout school because of his speech. So it left Mason not really wanting to be very social or to be interactive with people. And honestly, can you blame him for that? I don't. If every time I spoke, someone said something mean to me or looked at me funny, I probably would not say anything. I have Tourette's syndrome and I had it. I was diagnosed when I was 10. And so I did have, you know, tics or I would say things out loud or make noises throughout my entire childhood. And it was horrible. It was awful. And Luckily, I went to a very, very small, you know, school. I didn't have that many kids, so they were pretty tolerant. But as I got older and I moved out of that school and went to a much larger high school, 
it was not as easy and people were not as nice. So I can kind of relate to that a little bit. And even as an adult now, I can control it somewhat. But there are definitely times where I I can't or I don't know that I'm doing it. And I still get funny looks from people. And it's not fun. So as a teenager, Mason trying to deal with this had had to be just very traumatic at times for him, I can imagine. Mason is described as being shy and sensitive, both of which make total sense. He is also described as being incredibly bright and a very intelligent person. Mason also had a very creative side. He loved music and Mason wanted to be a rock star. He would sing, write his own lyrics, and he dreamed of learning to play the guitar and be in a band. He had a deep love for the post-grunge rock band Breaking Benjamin, which Mason, clearly he's got great taste in music because once upon a time, I would definitely have rocked the fuck out to Breaking Benjamin. I probably still would, to be perfectly honest. But it wasn't just music that captured Mason's attention. He was an avid gamer. Like, he loved video games. But even more so, Mason loved anime. I mean, he loved anime. To the point where, at times, it was all he wanted to do. Kind of like almost an obsession. Which could and would cause issues with his parents. But more so with his dad, Darren. Now, there was one incident in December of 2013 when the family was still living in Canada. 15-year-old Mason's grades had begun slipping, and his parents were not happy with it. And as a punishment, they took away Mason's Xbox. And for teenage boys to take away their Xbox or their PlayStation, their Switch, whatever their gaming system of choice is, this is a big deal, and it was a big deal to Mason. But Tracy and Darren felt that he was spending way too much time and paying attention to video games, and just not studying and not focusing on his schooling. So this was the solution. But to Mason, it definitely was not a solution, at least not one that he was okay with. And Mason definitely let it be known that he was not happy. In the middle of the night, Mason packs a sleeping bag, some food from the kitchen, and a stack of resumes. Now, I don't know what type of resume a 15-year-old kid has, but Mason had one. According to Tracy, Mason was determined that he was going to make it on his own. Mason was set on showing them that he did not need them. But being December in Alberta, Canada, it was bitterly cold with the average daytime temps of six degrees Fahrenheit with the lowest temperature of the whole month being on December 6th. And that was negative 36 degrees Fahrenheit. So, I mean, it's pretty fucking cold. And apparently Mason, he thought so too. His expedition out the house and making it on his own only lasted a few hours before the cold sent Mason right back home. And having been born and raised in, you know, the Miami area and lived there most of my life, I'm up north now, so I can kind of see a winter. But to see temperatures like that, that is terrifying to me. I wouldn't even know what to do with myself. So I definitely see why Mason headed right back to the house. But one thing I'm not sure of is how Mason's mom or parents found out about his, albeit short, midnight trip. Did Mason tell them? Did they know he left? Did they try to stop him? Did they figure he'd be back and didn't take him seriously? Did one of the siblings tell them? 
I definitely like to know the details. Was he punished? Did they talk with him about it? Did they just kind of ignore it? How did they, how did they react? Like, I have questions about this whole situation. So the next couple years go by, and at this point, Mason is the only child that's living at home now. Mostly, it's just Tracy and Mason in the house on most days. Darren was working construction jobs, and he was gone most of the time, often for months at a time. And again, I don't know what type of control he had over his aphasia. You know, with my Tourette's, again, it took me a long time, right? And now that I'm older, I can kind of laugh about it. But when I was younger, it was super depressing. It was scary. It was super embarrassing. And it definitely affected my ability to socialize. So I can imagine that him working at the Walmart, dealing with the speech impediment, and maybe when he got nervous or kind of flustered, it got worse. I know my Tourette's does. And actually, some of the raw recordings of my episodes can be really funny before I take out some of the the noises and the ticks and the sounds. But I don't know if Mason was ever at a point where he could laugh at himself yet. And it took me a really long time. So, and while it was known that Mason had a lot of, you know, depressive episodes, it wasn't just Mason who was prone to episodic depression. Tracy was also very much prone to the same mental health issues as her son. And based on these medical needs, right, the bullying at Mason School, the rough Canadian winter, Darren's prolonged absences, the decisions to move to Utah was made right before Mason's senior year. So in April of 2015, Tracy and Mason make the move to 2930 East Amaranth Drive in St. George, Utah. Now, St. George is known as a small tourist town of approximately about 80,000 locals when the Smiths moved there in 2015. St. George was a city known for its incredible scenery and numerous state parks. And the photos are gorgeous. I will say that. I mean, Utah is a beautiful state. Now, St. George is in southwest Utah. So it's very close to nearby Snow Canyon State Park with trails, dunes, red sandstone cliffs. Sand Hollow State Park, Zion National Park, and those are directly northeast. There are several large bodies of water that are close by, the Virgin River, Sand Hollow Reservoir, and Quail Creek State Park. So there is a lot to do, especially if you're kind of like to be by yourself, you like to be outside, and Mason was both of those. So I can imagine this was probably a happy move for him. And a big push behind this particular move was the weather in St. George, which I definitely understand. I'm very seasonally effective. Again, having spent most of my life down south, you know, a few years ago when I moved up north, I was not used to there being no greenery for half the year. It's kind of that gray, dark, not a lot of sunshine, not a lot of blue skies. And it gets dark at like five o'clock right now. So I struggled for a very long time to deal with the change in that. Now, Tracy and Mason, they make it to St. George and Darren is set to arrive several months later. So mom and son, they're getting settled and acclimated to their new environment. But because Mason was coming from Canada, unfortunately, not all of his high school credits transferred to the new high school in the United States. So shortly after they arrive in Utah, Tracy enrolls Mason in summer school classes at Desert Hills High School just to get him caught up with the rest of his senior class. Now, Tracy wants to help Mason adjust and succeed in his new environment. That was why they moved, right? To just kind of get a fresh start for him and for her. 
So she makes a deal with Mason. As long as he's making good grades and he's maintaining them, in return for his hard work, Mason was going to be allowed to watch anime, which Mason was very into, again, almost obsessively. But Tracy did continue to enforce the 10 p.m. school night rule, which was no electronics after 10 p.m. if it was a school night, regardless of the grades. And if you're not familiar with anime, I'm going to give you just a quick rundown because it is a pretty big and important part of Mason's story. So anime is hand-drawn and computer-generated animation that originates from Japan. Now, outside of Japan and in English, anime refers specifically to animation that is produced only in Japan. However, in Japan and in Japanese culture, anime describes all animated works, regardless of style or origin. Now, anime can range from something as familiar and global as Pokemon, which I'm a huge fan huge fan of Pokemon Go all the time. And it can range from that to Jujutsu Kaisen, Demon Slayer, Vinland Saga, The Witch from Mercury, Mobile Sweet Gundam, The Fire Hunter, and Buddy Daddies, just to name a few of the more popular, just straight anime ones, all of which you can watch on Crunchyroll, which is a streaming service just for anime that I do subscribe to because my son likes that kind of stuff too. Big into video games, not obsessively into anime, but he likes to watch the Persona 5 series and you can only find that on Crunchyroll. So I am a little familiar with anime in that sense. And anime is a huge market. So just to give you an idea, as of 2021, and this is according to the Ampere Consumer Data, More than one-third, or 36%, of the world population, or 2.88 billion people, watch anime. So anime is the third most in-demand subgenre worldwide. I mean, it's huge. Now, as far as in Japan, almost 90% of Japanese young adults watch anime. And in 2020, the anime industry reached 2.4 trillion yen, which is $22.5 billion. And out of the top 50 countries by anime popularity, the United States is 16th and Canada comes in at 21, 21st. So Mason was definitely not alone in his interest of anime. And in 2013, 137,734 teenage kids were surveyed. And this is a pretty decent sized survey. Now, this was done in Japan and over the almost, you know, 138,000 kids, 42.2% self-described being addicted to anime, video games or computers. So the anime addiction or, you know, the video game addiction, it's a very, very real thing. And it was definitely real to Mason. Mason began his senior year August 19th of 2015. Now, even though he is a new student, shy, quiet, doesn't talk much, you couldn't really miss Mason. He stood an impressive six foot four, 200 pounds. He had bright blue eyes, bright blonde hair, and size 14 shoes. So he definitely cut an imposing figure. Maybe not imposing, but definitely a memorable figure. Because once you got to know him, you realized he was just a really sweet kind of teddy bear type of guy. But Mason was definitely a gentle giant, and he enjoyed his new school. He was accepted there for himself. He wasn't bullied for his speech, 
And he would comment to his mother how nice the people were in Utah in comparison to his high school in Canada. And he was loving the weather and just the overall environment that was in Utah. And by all accounts, Mason seemed really happy in his new home, his change of scenery, his new environment, the new high school. So what happened on September 1st of 2015? Well, let's back up a few days. So just as kind of a super quick recap, in 2011, Mason attends Foothills Composite High School in Alberta, Canada. April 2015, Darren leaves for work to go out of town for the spring and the summer. This is the same month that Tracy and Mason head down to start their new life in Utah. They get settled in their new house and Mason begins summer school in July of 2015. So August 19th of 2015. Mason begins his senior year at Desert Hills High School. Okay, so that brings us up to August 29th, 2015. Darren finishes the job that he was away working at, and he heads to meet the family in Utah to start their new life. Once he gets back, he begins to kind of hassle Mason almost immediately into going with him to practice driving. And to say that Mason wanted no part of that is a definite understatement. Now, I don't know if it was the act of driving itself that had Mason so put off. I know as a teenager, I was very intimidated to drive. So I would understand if he kind of felt that way also. And I also received my license several years past the age of when I was eligible. So I do know that driving when you're not comfortable driving or if you don't want to can be a pretty scary and a pretty intimidating thing. So was it the driving? Or was it that he just didn't want to be in a car alone with his father? Or I suppose it's possible that it, it's just both. It just, it wasn't a good combination for Mason. Now, Monday, August 31st, 2015, Mason sends Tracy a text message with a picture of his grades for the week. So he had an A in language arts, an A in basic academic skills, an A in biology, an A in choir concert, an A in U.S. history, two, and an A in college prep math. So along with the picture of his grades, Mason sends his mom a message. Is this good enough grades to watch anime? So if you remember, that was the agreement that Tracy had with Mason. If his grades were good, he could watch anime during the week, just not past 10 p.m. So Tracy responds with, wow, looking good, Mason. Have dad take you driving first. And I'm sure that Mason did not take this well at all. I imagine he was feeling like, wait a minute, driving was not part of our agreement. I got anime privileges if and when I brought home good grades and I maintained them. And now that his dad has returned home, a lot of the rules have started to change. So I definitely believe that Mason could have been feeling some type of way about that and probably felt some type of way about his dad being home just in general. Tracy and Mason were used to it being just them in the house. They had their own routines. They had their own rules. So Darren being home, I imagine, could have at times been very stressful for Mason. And that appeared to be the case. So later that afternoon on August 31st, Mason cancels his driving lesson or the scheduled drive time with his dad. And instead, he says he has a headache and he's not feeling well. So later in the evening of August 31st, around 8.30 p.m., Tracy says that she comes home from work and she finds Mason in bed with the lights off. 
She sits at the foot of his bed and she asks him, you know, what's going on? And Mason gives the easy reply of, I just don't feel well, as the reason why he couldn't go driving with his dad that afternoon. So Tracy takes him at face value and she believes that her son just isn't feeling well. Now, he might not have. He could have had a lot of anxiety around wanting to drive or not wanting to drive. And that could have caused an upset stomach, a headache, just, you know, nerves in general can cause a physical reaction. So maybe he really wasn't feeling well. So she kisses him on the head and tells him, you know, I hope you feel better soon. After that, she leaves the room and she allows Mason, you know, some privacy to just stay in bed and kind of relax. So between the hours of 8.30 p.m. when Tracy checked in on Mason and kind of asked him why he was in bed so early, up to 10 p.m., Tracy and Darren, they left Mason alone to kind of just unwind in his room, right? Now, at 10 p.m., Tracy unplugs the cord for the internet router. She had said in an episode of Disappeared that she would unplug the Wi-Fi or the internet cord every night. And almost every night would take it with her or she would hide it so Mason couldn't get it. And even if she would unplug it at night, oftentimes Mason would just plug it back in if she didn't take the cord with her. And he would get on the laptop or other electronics and watch his anime. And this was on school nights. And the deal was 10 p.m. was the electronic cutoff on school nights. Now, on that particular night, Tracy had said that she was tired and lazy and she just unplugged it. She didn't take it with her. Well, like many other teenagers would do, and like many other times, Mason took advantage of this. And he plugs the Wi-Fi back in, and he watches anime on his laptop. Now, 1.30 in the morning, which brings us to September 1st, Darren wakes up, and he gets up to check on Mason. And he sees the blue light from the router is on, and there's light coming from underneath Mason's door. So thinking that Mason was online, he goes in his room to check and sure enough, Mason is online and he's watching anime. So Darren goes in and he confiscates all of Mason's electronics. And according to Darren, Mason doesn't put up any fuss. There's no fight, no argument about handing over his stuff, which I do kind of find at a minimum to be a little odd. If this is someone who can't live without anime, Wi-Fi, electronics of some sort but he says absolutely nothing he didn't roll his eyes he didn't put up an argument he wasn't like oh you know that type of thing I don't know but Mason was known to be quite passive so I guess it is possible that he didn't give any type of pushback or he also knew it was 1 30 in the morning he should not have been on the laptop and there wasn't really any argument to be had. He wasn't supposed to be on it. It was a school night. So I guess Mason saying absolutely nothing. I mean, that's believable, I guess. But I would think as a 17-year-old, an eye roll would have accompanied that or something would have been said or done. I am going to make a note here, though, that at a later date, Tracy did say that Mason he deleted all of his search history on the laptop around 12.30 a.m., so about an hour before Darren comes in and catches him on the computer. He erased everything he was doing on there, his searches, all of it. So 7 a.m. on September 1st, Tracy says that Darren knocks on Mason's door and he asks him, you know, Mason, are you up? And according to Tracy and Darren, 
Mason responds with an affirmative, yep. After hearing that, Darren goes back to bed. 7.30 that morning, Tracy says that she hears Mason rifling around in the kitchen. 7.40 a.m. Both Tracy and Darren hear Mason open and closing the garage door, assuming that Mason is heading to his bus stop. Now, the bus stop is about a two-minute walk. It's just around the corner from their house. 7.41. The school bus arrives at the designated pickup stop, and Mason's not at the bus stop, so the bus leaves without him on it. 7.45 a.m. Darren arrives and electronically checks in at Vasa Fitness, which this is probably one of the biggest things that confuses me about his timeline. How did he get there at 7.45? Didn't he go back to bed at 7? And at 7.40, it says that the parents hear Mason open and close the garage door. But yet five minutes later, Darren is checked in electronically at the gym. We will get into that a little bit more in detail later on in the episode. Now, after completing his workout, Darren says that he returns home and he spends most of the rest of the day in the backyard doing yard work. I don't know if anyone else can confirm that, though, other than Tracy. So I definitely would want to know if there were any surveillance footage of him being in the yard. Did a neighbor see him? Is there anyone else other than his wife that can confirm that he was in the backyard all day doing yard work? Later that afternoon, 3.15 p.m., the Smith's neighbor, Sandy Lyman, says that she sees Mason walk past her house, but he is walking in the direction away from the Smith residence, so he's walking away from his house. Now, also at 3.15 p.m. that day, September 1st, Mason's school bus arrives to drop the kids off from his neighborhood, but Mason was not on the school bus. Now, how positive was Miss Lyman that it was Mason, and not only that it was Mason, but that it was that day and not another day? Because it sounds like the neighbor saw him as he got off the bus, but we know that Mason was not on the bus on September 1st. So why would he be walking around his neighborhood? Especially if he didn't want his parents to see him or he was planning on running away. Unless, I guess maybe the initial plan was to just skip school for the day. And as the day went on, the plan progressed to something else. But that particular sighting of Mason just doesn't seem to fit. So again, I would want to know, was there any surveillance cameras or ring doorbell cameras, anything that caught Mason in the neighborhood that day? Now, shortly after 10 p.m., Mason's parents do file a missing juvenile report with the St. George Police Department. So September 1st, 2015, there are several things that went on throughout the course of the day that aren't timestamped and happened at various different points. So I do want to go through those here. Now, Darren claims he went into Mason's room and took Mason's laptop cord to see what Mason had been looking at online. So I guess he didn't take that earlier in the morning when he took the laptop and Mason's other electronics. I guess he left the cord in there. Now, Tracy says that she got a text message from Darren while she's at work. And the text message told her that Mason never made it home from school. Tracy said that while she's at work, she got this message. She then checks her email and she sees that she received an email from Desert Hills High School earlier that day. 
and it was informing her that Mason never showed up to school. He was absent the entire day. I don't know why she was just now seeing this email, but I would guess that she saw it between 3.30 and 5 p.m. So after receiving the text from Darren and then the email from the school, Tracy says she left work early and she comes home to see what is going on with her son. When Tracy gets home, she said that she attempted to go into Mason's room, but that the door is locked. So Tracy and Darren then pick the lock to the bedroom door. They gain entry into the room. They look around, but they see nothing unusual. Let me know after I just read that if you picked up on something there that doesn't quite make sense. Hold on to that thought, though, because we'll get into it a little bit later. But yeah. So later on September 1st. So that particular night was a night that Mason would typically go to his youth group at church. So Tracy says that they call up to the youth group to see if Mason showed up. They didn't go up there to see, though. They just called. And I did find that a little bit odd, to be honest. Personally, I would have gone up there myself in person And not only just to see if he was there, but I would want to talk to the people in the group. Have you heard from him? Did he say anything to you? Has he been acting weird when he was at the group last week, the week before? I would really want to try to get information from his peer group. So at some point, Tracy says that a sheriff arrives to the house and agrees to patrol the area and look to see if Mason is around. Now, I'm going to guess that this was after 10 p.m., because that was when they filed the missing juvenile report. So September 1st, it came and went, and Mason didn't show up at home. He never returned to school. He just, he's gone. So we are now at the morning of September 2nd, 2015. Tracy says that she drove to Desert Hills High School to pay for Mason's senior cap and gown and tassel set for his graduation that was set to take place later that school year. Now, this to me, that whole thing seems odd. Your son is missing. And instead of boots on the ground out looking for him, searching, volunteers, trying to speak to friends, anything, she goes and pays for his graduation stuff. You know, ma'am, your child is not here to graduate. Go out and look for him. I don't know. I found it odd. And I find it super weird that they were not out knees to chesting it looking for this child, for their child. I don't know. Now, apparently at some point during this day, Tracy goes back into Mason's room. So yesterday, nothing looked unusual or out of place to his parents. Today, Tracy discovers Mason's school notebook in his room with his backpack and school books hidden under a t-shirt in the closet. Now, it's on this day that Tracy also discovers Mason's wallet in his nightstand. It's in a bottom drawer pushed all the way to the back. Now, I would kind of want to know, is this his current wallet? Was this an older one that he didn't use anymore? Could that be why it was in the drawer pushed all the way in the back? Or was that purposeful? Was it hidden by Mason on purpose? And if so, why? Now, inside the wallet was cash. I don't know how much cash, but I can't imagine it was a ton. I mean, he was 17. And he didn't have a job of any type, so... Now, his school identification was also in the wallet. I would guess that he had a state ID card of some sort. I don't know, but I would guess if he did, that would have been in there too. In some articles I found, it said school identification specifically, 
And in other ones, it just said his identification. So I'm not sure exactly which was in there or if both were in there. So at some point throughout this day, Tracy reaches out to Mason's five siblings and she lets them know that their brother is missing. Now, I personally probably would have called the siblings before then, especially Raceland, as close as her and Mason were. I know how my kids are. I have six also, and they're very, very close to each other. So they tell each other a lot of stuff. I know that wasn't exactly the dynamic with Mason and all six of his siblings, but I do know he was very, very close to his sister. So I probably would have called her immediately and tried to get information from her. You know, what did he sound like? What had been going on? How is he feeling? Even if she didn't think it was anything important, it might be. So I would have probably called the siblings, especially the sister, immediately. So that brings us to September 3rd of 2015. Tracy said that she contacts the bus garage and some of the other children from Mason's bus stop just to see if maybe Mason had gotten on the school bus that day. Also on September 3rd, Tracy says that she reaches out to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, I'm not sure why exactly she reached out to them. I don't know if it was for spiritual support during this time or did she want them to do something to help find Mason? Like, did she want them involved? Okay, so jump to September 4th. Mason's siblings all gather at the house and they begin the search for their brother. Flyers had been made at this point and Mason's siblings began to canvas the neighborhood and hang up flyers with Mason's face and information on them. September 5th. Now, this is the first possible sighting of Mason. Witnesses see a hitchhiker matching Mason's description about five miles away near the I-15 on-ramp. And this person is holding a sign that read, you know, needs to get to Las Vegas. And as we had discussed previously, Mason cut quite a memorable figure. So what are the odds that it was a different six foot four, blonde, blue eyed, 200 pound, 17 year old teenage kid who also happened to be missing at the time and was considered to be a runaway? I'm thinking like maybe it could have been an adult and the person just got confused. They kind of looked similar, but this wasn't an actual child. So sometime between September 5th and September 7th, Mason's father heads to Las Vegas to look for Mason. Now, while he is there, either Mason's uncle joins him in Vegas or maybe the uncle possibly lived there already. I don't know if he traveled with him, but either way, Darren and an uncle of Mason, they hit the strip and they go to look for him on September 7th. So meanwhile, Tracy is back in Utah and she decides to look through some of Mason's things again. And this included his wallet. Now, as she's going through the wallet for a second time, this time around, she discovers a three page handwritten note folded up in his wallet. Now, I don't know how she could have missed that the first time. There's a lot of, you know, stuff surrounding the wallet two or the note I'm sorry and the wallet so we will get into that a little bit later also when we get more in depth into some of the indiscrepancies or some of the oddities from the parents on September 16th a candlelight vigil is held for the Smith family for Mason's safe return and to kind of bring awareness to his situation on September 17th 2015 
a fundraiser for Tracy Smith was held by Jamie Parsley, and it was help find Mason at GoFundMe.com. At some point during the month of September, Red Rock Search and Rescue becomes involved in the search for Mason Smith. Now, Red Rock Search and Rescue, according to their website, they are a nonprofit organization of highly skilled and trained group of volunteers who are on standby 24-7 to help assist you with your missing or lost loved ones. And their team is made up of 200 plus nationally trained and certified volunteers that help families search for their loved ones. The Red Rock Rescue Team averages approximately 26,000 hours a year assisting local agencies, serving as a force multiplier, according to them. And this is in locating lost and missing hikers, dementia, Alzheimer, autistic individuals, and conducting evidence searches and active police investigations, while at the same time utilizing the FEMA standards of incident command management. Now, in addition to helping in active and cold case searches, they also help to raise awareness and educate the community on how to be safe while you're outdoors or in the wilderness. So this is a great team and a great resource to have in your corner if you have a missing loved one. So Red Rock becomes involved in September. And September 26th through the 27th in 2015, Red Rock does their first large-scale search for Mason Smith. On February 7th of 2016, so we're into the next year, there's a $10,000 reward that is offered for information leading to Mason's safe return. April 2nd of 2016, the Red Rock Search and Rescue Group conduct a forensic search around St. George, Utah. Now, I don't know what all is involved in a forensic search, but they did one on April 2nd. April 7th, 2016. Now, this was Mason's 18th birthday. And they did hold a party for him, but it looked like they held it inside of a Walmart. According to the pictures that I saw, it was kind of odd. But they did have a party for him. Now, most people assumed that Mason would return home, either on this day or very shortly after. And the lead detective said during an interview on the Investigation Discovery Disappeared episode that she fully expected to get a call on Mason's 18th birthday that he had returned home because at that point, he would be an adult. Now, he would still have lived at home under his parents' rules, but he would be an adult. And I do understand the thought process behind it. They thought he left because of the anime thing. He was being told what to do. He was being made to drive. So if he was an adult, he wouldn't have to necessarily, you know, do what his parents said or follow certain rules. But Mason doesn't show up. He does not come home on his 18th birthday and no one hears from him. So May 24th, 25th, 2016. Mason's graduation at Desert Hill High School comes and goes and Mason didn't return for that either. So December of 2016. At some point in December, the St. George police, they either finally analyze Mason's laptop computer or they get the results back. And on the laptop, they find an extensive amount of anime, no big surprise, and searches for anime adult sexy content. Yeah, 
which doesn't super surprise me either on either one of those. Now, also, sometime during the month of December, the police issue and serve a search warrant at the Smith's residence. March 2017, the St. George police serve another search warrant on the Smith's property and for a GPS tracker. So the St. George police, they get permission to put a GPS tracker on Mason's father's pickup truck in order to monitor his movements. Now, on June 21st, 2017, another search warrant is approved and executed. And in this, the St. George police write in the search warrant affidavit that Tracy and Darren know more information surrounding Mason's disappearance than they have disclosed. Now, in May of 2018, after 30 years of marriage, Tracy and Darren finalize their divorce. January 21st, 2019, a Mason Smith Memorial Bench was unveiled at the Crimson Ridge Park on 3000 East in St. George, Utah, during a dedication ceremony. Now, on the bench, there is a picture of Mason, bright-eyed and smiling. I'm sure the way his parents, friends, and family all remember him. Now, the custom-crafted blue and white bench, it features laser-etched granite engravings of Mason's. It's got his full name, his birth date, next to the date that he went missing. The engraving, it also includes the phrase, never give up, never surrender. Now, I do find it odd that they put the date that he went missing kind of as his death date. I don't know. I do know that especially the father at that point believed that Mason was no longer alive. But since they don't know that and they don't have Mason's body, I found that to be very odd that that was what they chose, but that was their choice. May 22nd, 2019, Jay McFarlane, who is Mason's uncle, he writes an opinion piece via KSL News Radio, which we will get into more in detail later on in the episode. And May 27th, 2021, ABC4 Utah reported by Marcus Ortiz, that Tracy now thinks that her son is no longer alive. Now, there are a couple things that I found kind of last minute after I did the timeline and right before I went to record. So I do want to include them, even though they're a little out of order. But in 2016, there were a total of four searches that were conducted. And I would say maybe with nothing discovered, but if there was something that came from those, the police have not released it. Now, October 24th of 2017, searchers looking along the Virgin River found a white t-shirt size extra large on the bank of the river. And it appeared to have been there for quite some time. It was worn and it was covered in mud. Now, the family viewed this as a potential clue or possible evidence. The shirt was Mason's size, and he often wore plain, solid-colored t-shirts, specifically white ones. In September of 2018, a search was done of the desert trenches near the family's home, and it covered about a two-mile radius. Nothing was found during this search, and this is what the Smiths say was their last search for Mason. Now, I also want to make a note that after the first week that Mason went missing, It was his aunt that was able to get Mason's passwords for his computer, 
the phone and any social media that he might have had. They figured out at this point that Mason was not active on social media. But I mean, that doesn't really surprise me too super much. He had deleted his search history, but he mainly used his computer to just watch anime and play video games. Nothing too surprising there. As time went on and the investigation continued, a lot of questions sort of arose around Mason's parents, specifically his father, Darren. I want to focus on the part of the investigation where the search warrants and polygraphs were conducted on Tracy and Darren Smith. There were nearly a dozen search warrant affidavits filed by the St. George Police Department in the 7th District Court. So let's start with what led to the suspicion to begin with. Now, the biggest thing that caused the most questions for police, it surrounded Darren's trip to the gym the morning of September 1st of 2015. A December 2016 search warrant said that Darren's membership card to Vasa Fitness was used to check into the gym at 7.45 a.m. Mason's bus was scheduled to pick him up at 7.41 a.m. The Smiths lived approximately 10 minutes from Vasa Fitness. Now, the 10 minutes, does that account for rush hour traffic or for any traffic at all? School zones with decreased speed limits? I would guess probably not. So the 10 minutes is probably a very rough estimate without any type of other variables involved that could either slow down their trip or even speed it up if there was zero traffic, right? And they were just kind of cruising along. But just in general... 10 minutes. Now, this discrepancy is just one of a couple things that stuck out quite a bit to the police as just not matching up. But the Smiths felt that they could explain the discrepancy with no problem. Tracy and Darren both said that all of the times that they gave police were just guesses. According to Tracy, she said that at the time Darren went to the gym, no one knew their son wouldn't be returning that afternoon from school and that it would turn into a nationally publicized investigation. So knowing exact times was not something that they were paying much attention to. Tracy continued, We're giving guesstimates out there. We're not thinking this is going to be sealed in stone because you don't think you're a suspect when you're giving information. You're just saying, this is what went on that morning. Do I think it's a big deal? Do I think it's a deal breaker or something that's going to break the case? No. I think it's a guy who went to the gym after his son went to school. Darren's response was, I don't understand what the discrepancy would even mean. Even going as far as to suggest that Vass's timestamp was inaccurate. He also added that if police believe he was lying, why wouldn't they believe his wife was lying as well since she told the same story that he did? But to touch on something that Tracy said about the times being just guesses. Yes, I understand that. But certain times, in my opinion, aren't up for a wide level of interpretation. Like the time the bus comes at 7.41 a.m. They have to keep a schedule. Now, of course, that can vary. But there should be documentation of some sort of when the bus actually arrived that morning at Mason's stop. And the suggestion that the timestamp at Vasa Fitness could have been incorrect. I do believe that the timestamp at the gym is probably pretty accurate. 
If it wasn't, I do think that they would have figured it out, especially by now, if there was an off in the time. So I'm sure that they checked that to make sure that it was an accurate timestamp. So just me personally, I've taken issue with some parts of the timeline from the very beginning. Another thing that added suspicion towards the parents was what Darren allegedly told a member of the Red Rock Search and Rescue team. Now, this was a retired police detective who was involved in these searches for Mason. Now, these conversations, as reported by the retired police detective, raised red flags for the St. George Police Department. Because if you believe the former detective, the inconsistencies, they're pretty real. Now, the conversations between Darren and this former detective are supposed to have taken place during Red Rock's involvement in the search for Mason. Now, according to this former detective and Red Rock group member, he says that Darren specifically tells him that he had never seen or heard from Mason on the morning that he ran away. That morning he's referencing would be the September 1st, 2015 date. In fact, according to the search warrant, Darren allegedly tells this Red Rock group member that Mason easily, or very possibly, could have gone missing sometime throughout the night. Now, if that is the case, would Darren have gone to the gym at 745 if he knew that his son was missing and or had possibly ran away in the middle of the night? I mean, I would certainly hope not. I would like to think that he wouldn't. But I guess that would depend on the nature of Mason's disappearance and whether Darren had anything to do with it or not. And if he was trying to, you know, cover anything up or create an alibi of sorts. Also noted in that search warrant was that during the 26th through 27th large-scale search that was done by Red Rock in September of 2015, Neither Tracy or Darren called or showed up to check on the progress of the search, despite some sort of special accommodations being made on scene for Tracy and Darren. Now, why they needed special accommodations or what the accommodations actually were, I'll be completely honest, I'm not sure. So this search and rescue member, the retired former detective, said that this was not behavior typically exhibited by parents or family of a missing person. But Tracy and Darren can clear this up as well. They said that they were told by the head of the search operation not to participate, telling them specifically, I don't want you to be the one that finds Mason. So according to Tracy and Darren, they were instructed not to go out and participate in the actual search itself. But Tracy and Darren were present at some points during the two-day search. And we know this because video shot by local news station KSL-TV had footage of them huddled together in a blanket, standing with a group of other volunteers. So they were there at some point on both days. Now, Darren's response to these accusations was, again, you know, just this is ridiculous, this is silly type of vibe to it with him saying, I don't know what's wrong with him. He, the Red Rock group member, the former detective, comes into our house and says, the parents do not search for the child. He then tells Darren that we have a mobile home that you, according to Darren, you was referring to the parents, both him and Tracy, 
that you sit in there and you wait while everyone goes out and searches. Darren continues. So we show up to the search in the a.m. And I say, I don't want to sit here. And then I go home. So I don't know what the problem is. I went home and cried the whole time that they were searching for my son. And then the search and rescue member comes on there and says, if it was my son, you couldn't stop me from searching for my son. I don't know what he meant by comes on there, maybe like TV to do an interview or possibly maybe a radio station. I'm not super for sure. But Darren sticks to the narrative that he was told that they were not supposed to look for him and they were specifically told not to go out on the searches. Now, again, I don't know about this. I get the not wanting to be there if they find your son, sort of. But what if they find him alive and he's injured? I want my face to be what he sees first. Yes, the trauma of searching and finding your son's body would be horrifically traumatic. But in my opinion, the need to find your child and find out what happened would be stronger than the fear. But that is just me. Maybe I would react differently when faced with that situation. But I do know me pretty well at this point, And I'm more on par with the former cop. It's more of a try and stop me type of thing, you know, from looking for or trying to get to my son. Like, good fucking luck. You better bring an army with you because it's not happening. But Tracy also had thoughts on this particular subject and on the person that was putting out all of this information. She didn't want to reference this person by name and by doing so, giving him any type of name recognition. But she did confirm this person was with the volunteer rescue organization and felt that they were only an attention seeker who was biased and came in with a preconceived notion, believing that he already knew what happened to Mason and that Darren was the one at fault for it. She added, I felt like he came to the case with a bias and a scenario already written out. And it was these biases or preconceived notions that turned the St. George Police Department against them, essentially. And it kind of, you know, had them look directly at them. Tracy and Darren both strongly believe that it was these conversations or information given to the St. George Police Department by the retired former detective that caused the St. George Police Department to begin treating them completely differently. Like it gave them an entirely new outlook on the parents and their possible involvement. Tracy said, we felt a shift immediately with regards to how they treated us, how we were spoken to, and the support behind us that after a while just kind of became non-existent. But did it become non-existent? I don't know about non-existent, but I do believe the police were doing their job and following every lead, especially with regards to investigating the parents. As we unfortunately know, the parents, you know, relatives or the close inner circle are typically the ones who are responsible in disappearances or murders like this case. Darren said, when I found out what people were saying, I called the police up and said, look, I want to take a lie detector test because I want to prove I had nothing to do with it. He said, I was also 
the one that set everything up with the police, telling them, I want to sit down with you because there's a lot of things that have been going around. and I want to clarify them. Darren said the reason he called them up was because he was hearing some discrepancies of his own. So in other words, the streets was talking and Darren wanted to respond. So he said he sat down with the police for four hours and we just went over everything over and over and then over again. I was the one that set all of that up because I didn't want there to be any discrepancies, any problems. I think I really tried hard to make sure there wasn't any inconsistencies. Also, according to Darren, it was after that meeting was when the St. George Police Department arranged for him to come and take a polygraph test with an independent polygrapher or polygrapher. I'm not sure the exact way to say that, but the person who was doing the polygraph test, administering it. But why outsource that though? They had someone in their department who could give the polygraph themselves. After Darren's polygraph is done, Tracy takes hers just a few days later. And supposedly that person, the person who also gave him his, the independent polygrapher, told Tracy that Darren passed his polygraph from a few days earlier when he took it with him. Now that's weird to me. Why would that person tell Tracy and not Darren personally that he passed the polygraph test? And why not provide official documentation? So I, I don't know that I believe that part, to be honest. My dad used to give polygraphs and he also taught other people how to correctly administer a polygraph test. And there is always a documentation of some type, whether you failed, passed, inconclusive, something. And I did ask him how common it was to tell the spouse before you would tell the person who actually took the test. And he said that's not really how that would go. Adding to the oddities around the polygraph test, Darren also said that he took a second polygraph test, but this time he did it with the investigators at the St. George Police Department. So it was done in-house, which for whatever reason, it wasn't done that way the first time. But why take a second one if you passed the first one? I, I don't know. I guess maybe they wanted the second one done with a person that the St. George Police Department picked, but I feel like they picked the independent one also. So that, again, doesn't make sense to me either. But in my opinion, it would make sense if you failed the first one and wanting to prove your innocence insisted on taking a second one. That makes more sense to me than passing your first test and taking another one with an entirely different polygrapher. So just another sort of side-eye moment that involved Darren. The St. George Police Department spokeswoman, Tiffany Atkin, had emphasized on a number of occasions that both Darren and Tracy had been cooperative throughout the investigation. But according to the December 2016 search warrant, and this was written up one year and three months after Mason went missing, the lead investigator wrote that neither Tracy nor Darren has ever called me to check on the status of the case since Mason was filed as a missing juvenile and was initially listed as a runaway on September 1st of 2015. And reiterating the lack of family involvement, 
The investigator wrote, over the last year, I have also not heard from any of Mason's siblings regarding the search or status of Mason's case. But Tracy says that is just simply not true. Tracy said that she did text and email the lead detective regularly, but did not want to call her to bother her. Furthermore, she assumed that if there was some sort of significant new development in the case, that the police would call her and let her know. I do take a little bit of issue with that. You don't want to call the lead detective and ask about your missing child because it might bother her. It might bother her. So she is the detective that was assigned to this case. This is her job, right? So yes, as a mother, you have not found my child. This case is still open. I'm going to probably bother you every day until there is a resolution on my child's case. And I don't think that that's bothering the detective. I think that is a concerned mother or parent wanting to know what happened to her child. I want to know what you're doing. I want to know what you're not doing, who you've talked to, what you found, what you know. I would want to know everything. And best believe, I definitely will be calling the investigator, whether that's bothering them or not. So based off of the things that were listed in the previous search warrants, plus the fact that Darren was going off to search for Mason on his own and conducting his own private searches, the detective sought to have a GPS tracker put on Darren's truck in March of 2017. Knowing now that Darren was searching for Mason on his own, it just makes me wonder, like, why then would he not participate in the other searches that were done for Mason? Specifically, the searches with the Red Rock group that the former retired detective told the police that Tracy and Darren didn't participate in at all. According to the March 2017 search warrant request for the GPS tracker, the detective stated, I know individuals are known to return to the scene of the crime. Based upon the totality of the circumstances and the fact that Darren has admitted to continuing to search for Mason on his own, I believe there is enough probable cause to issue a search warrant to place a mobile tracking device upon Darren's 2006 Toyota Tundra double cab truck. The warrant was approved for the monitoring of Darren's truck for at least 60 days. Now, at first, neither Darren or Tracy were aware of the GPS tracker being placed on the truck. But upon finding out about it, both of them say that they didn't mind it. Darren said he actually welcomed it because he felt like it would help to clear his name. Darren said, I'm actually glad they did put that on my vehicle because I've got nothing to hide from them. Now, Tracy said about the GPS that she was also unaware of its existence, but that nothing surprises me at this point. I am not opposed to any of it. The sooner they would investigate us, the sooner they could move on and hopefully find a trail to where Mason is. Am I shocked? I don't think I'm shocked at anything anymore. I think it was necessary. And if that's what it took to rule Darren out, I welcome it. Obviously, nothing came of it. But is that true? We don't know what came of it because whatever evidence was collected from the GPS tracker, it has not been publicly revealed. It's also not been confirmed on whether the GPS was just for the 60 days or if they sought and received an extension. Darren also said that the GPS showed how many times he went out looking for his son 
on his own, stating, if I would have done something with my son, I definitely wouldn't be out searching for him by myself. So I'm glad they did that. So they have a record of all the places I went and all the hours I spent searching for him. Darren went on to say, as for me being investigated for homicide, that's absurd because he left a suicide note. I just don't understand what they could be thinking. I was the one who called the police the night he didn't come home. I've done everything I could to try and find Mason and help the police find him. So I don't understand how they could think that. Well, so much about Darren's timeline, his story, possibly the polygraph results, it's all not matching up. And they think that because most people are murdered by the person or people closest to them. And according to Darren, he was the last person to see Mason alive at his house at around 1 to 1.30 in the morning when he confiscated the electronics. According to a June 21st, 2017 search warrant, Darren's timeline and whether this was just a missing persons case was being questioned with court documents indicating that while police are exploring the possibility that Mason did run away from home, detectives have also been exploring the possibility that Mason was murdered. The warrant goes on to state that throughout the investigation, there have been discrepancies between what Mason's parents, Tracy and Darren Smith, have told the St. George Police, Red Rock Search and Rescue, and the media. These discrepancies all point to the fact that Tracy and Darren know more information surrounding Mason's disappearance than they have disclosed. It also states that due to the lack of any credible sightings and or tips of Mason since his disappearance and the possible suicide notes found in his laptop and in his room, Mason is probably deceased. The June search warrant questioned the timeline of the morning of September 1st, 2015, specifically mentioning that after he heard Mason leave, Darren went and laid back down, then got up and went to Mason's room to get the power cord for Mason's laptop in order to see what he had been looking at at 1 a.m., but couldn't remember if he looked at it then or if he waited until he got back from the gym. Although from the timeline, Mason left, to get on the bus, and when Darren checked in at Vasa Fitness, was five minutes at most. Then he said he came back from the gym and did yard work all day until Mason should have gotten off the bus. There was no mention of going through Mason's laptop. Now, he clearly states more than once he was in bed when Mason left, leaving four to five minutes to get Mason's cord, possibly go through the computer, drive 10 minutes to the gym, add in rush hour and possibly decrease speed limit school zones. And he checked in at 7.45 in the morning. And this is according to Vasa Fitness's electronic check-in. That's not possible. Now, a lot has been said about Mason's change in behavior and emotional state when Darren would return home from working out of town. But Darren says that's absolutely not the case. Darren said, a lot of people think that Mason was doing really well until I came home and then he flipped out, but it wasn't like that. Mason was getting consistently worse by going in his room all day, every day. So I was concerned that he was going to, it had to turn around. Darren continued, it wasn't that I am this mean father that was going to come home and set him straight. I was worried about him 
that he was falling into the same traps that led him to try and commit suicide before. But Tracy said that Mason was doing much better and was much happier at Desert Hills High School and in Utah in general. So those scenarios don't line up either. Police did serve several search warrants seeking information from cell phones, laptops, social media accounts, and game consoles. According to the December 2016 search warrant, when investigators searched Mason's laptop, they found internet artifacts for an extensive amount of anime and anime pornography. Okay, I'm going to pause here because I feel like if you would go on any 17-year-old's laptop or electronic device, you are going to find just tons of porn, especially if it's a boy. I mean, that that didn't surprise me, doesn't shock me. The anime part's a little different, but honestly, not really. So none of that surprised me. But also, when Mason's laptop was searched for deleted content, the investigator found a Word document that talked about Mason trying to kill himself. Now, in this search warrant, Tracy's discovery of the three-page note in Mason's wallet is discussed. It's a handwritten letter, and the contents are not fully disclosed anywhere, actually. I really can't find what that note said anywhere. But the warrant mentions that in the letter, Mason berates Tracy and Darren, and apparently pretty badly. Now, I did watch the Investigation Discovery Disappeared episode, And Tracy there wouldn't say what the note included either, except that it had the words, I'm done in it. And Tracy wouldn't comment on the note any further past just that point. But the police don't necessarily think that that was his suicide note. The police believe that Mason didn't want anyone to find that note. And if he did want it found, he would have put it in a more obvious place. Now, Tracy said that Mason had told her he had tried to commit suicide before, but she didn't believe he wanted to hurt himself again. They didn't own any guns. They didn't have any pills. She said anything was possible, but she just didn't believe it. Now, I believe he was hospitalized from a previous suicide attempt. So did she mean that he tried to commit suicide while they were in Utah or just before at some point previously in his life, like while they were in Canada? I'm not exactly for sure what um, before entailed exactly. There is a lot of debate back and forth over whether this letter is in fact a suicide letter or a suicide note. The police do have possession of it. Now, again, the contents haven't been released, so we can kind of guess on what it says. But a lot of people lean toward that it is not, in fact, a actual suicide note. And that, they kind of base that on that most suicide victims would leave the note in plain sight. And from, you know, interviews or statements by the parents, that wasn't the case in this one. It has been confirmed that both parents were mentioned in the note, that they were not mentioned in very lovely or glowing terms either. Like this did not make them look very good. And also in the note, it talked about an argument that took place the night before Mason went missing. But again, the parents say, no, no, that is not, you know, accurate information. Everybody's got it wrong. There was no argument that took place. But according to his mother, 
what was mentioned in the note was Mason felt things were missing in his life and he wished they were different. It described a decline that had happened over the previous five years of Mason's life from the time he was 12 up until when he went missing. He said that he felt hurt and broken. And that it contained the words or the phrase, I'm done, which Mason's parents took to assume that meant he was done, I guess, with life. And that that was basically confirming that he had the intention of dying by a self-inflicted injury. Now, as for whether the parents are considered actual suspects, the St. George Police Department, their spokeswoman, Tiffany Adkin, she says that Darren isn't a suspect per se, but he is a close family member to Mason. And any time that we have asked for him to come in and speak with us, he has been cooperative. Anything we have asked of him, he has done. Now, spokeswoman Tiffany also said that no one in the Mason investigation is considered a suspect right now. But detectives believe that there are persons of interest who may have more information about what happened. And I feel like she's looking at you, Darren, when she says that. Now, there have also been some sightings over the years and at least one that Tracy found very credible. As with any missing persons case, sightings are going to be called in from all over the world. And from Argentina to Sacramento, this was the case with Mason Smith. Now, one of the main theories is that Mason ran away. Flyers were put up all over town and Mason's case went national due to social media exposure. And because of all the attention, many tips came pouring in about Mason's possible whereabouts. One tip that was called in early on was about a male matching Mason's description standing on the street corner with a sign that said, needs a ride to Vegas. Now, this road was about five miles from the Smith home. It turned out not to be Mason, though. The police were able to determine that it wasn't him with certainty through surveillance footage from several surrounding gas stations. Now, there's no word on if that person ever did make it to Vegas, which is about a two-hour drive from St. George. Now, shortly after that, another tip comes in that says several people see Mason in Las Vegas. So Darren and Mason's uncle, they jump in his truck and they head to Vegas to search for him. But there was no sign of him in Vegas either. It does make me wonder, though, if it was the guy in St. George from the original tip who had the sign and that he just did ultimately make it to Las Vegas. Because apparently there was a pretty striking similarity between the two men. Now, in July of 2016, a tip comes in from two girls at a Panda Express in the West Valley of California. Now, I googled it. And it looks like that Panda Express is in San Jose. And I also Googled the West Valley. And Google informed me that the West Valley is generally considered anything west of the I-17. So these two girls said that they had an interaction with someone who came up to them at the Panda Express and asked them for some change for the bus. The girls said, no problem. And they attempted to give the young man whatever change they happened to have, but he declined. He only wanted the exact amount of change that was required for him to be able to take the bus, and he wanted nothing extra. 
Something that stuck out to the girls was how polite this young man was. Also, they noticed the peculiar way that he spoke with a pretty pronounced speech impediment. When the girls got back home, they explained to one of the girls' mother about the boy at the Panda Express. The politeness, the speech, and honestly, just the sheer size of the young man. Like, he was a giant. And we know that that matches Mason as he came in at an impressive six foot four. Something about what the girls were telling the mother, though, kind of rang a bell with her. The mother thought the description sounded familiar. So she kind of thought about it and she figured out that it sounded like a news story she heard about a 17-year-old boy who was thought to have run away. I do want to point out that West Valley is less than an hour away from St. George at about 50 minutes and 38.4 miles away. So it definitely would not be super unheard of or difficult for Mason to have traveled that short distance. The mother pulls up the news story and she shows the girls Mason's picture and they both identified him. They said, yes, that was definitely the young man that we spoke to at the Panda Express. So the mother then gets in contact with Tracy. Tracy gives the girls Mason's cell phone number so that they can call it and hear Mason's voice on his voicemail message and see if it sounded like the boy that they spoke to at the Panda Express. Mason had a pretty distinct and a pretty unique sounding way of speaking. So Tracy wanted the girls to hear what he really sounded like. So the girls called the number, they listened to the voicemail message, and they said, yes, this sounded like the guy in the Panda Express. So excited and encouraged by this possible lead, Tracy notifies the police who go to the Panda Express to check surveillance tapes to see what happened at the Panda Express and if it was Mason. But as so often happens, the cameras at the Panda did not work. Now, I don't know if the police checked any surrounding companies to see if they had any working surveillance, if maybe they had footage of Mason. I don't know how in-depth they got with it. Unfortunately, though, this ended up being a dead end and nothing ever came from this particular tip or potential sighting, except for finding out that Mason was possibly into Chinese food, but that's about it. But this sighting was important because California was a place that Mason always talked about. He wanted to go to California and he wanted to be a beach bum there specifically. Most of the potential sightings of Mason have been in California. Now, there have also been multiple sightings of a young man who matches Mason's description, who appears to be homeless in the Sacramento area, but more specifically, in a Target parking lot in a shopping plaza in a town called Citrus Heights. The police said that they would look into it, but again, nothing came of that lead either. Now, typically, homeless teens don't stay in the same area or place for too long at a time. An Arizona couple say that they saw Mason or someone who looks like Mason in the Mesa area asking for change. There are also reports of a young homeless man traveling through Mexico and local authorities have confirmed that this young man does not speak Spanish. But I guess one of my questions would be, did they confirm that he spoke English? I'm guessing Mason didn't speak Spanish at all based on this report. However, Mason's family confirmed that this young man in Mexico was not Mason. I don't know how they were able to make that confirmation, maybe through surveillance footage, 
I'm not super for sure, but they were pretty confident that this was not their family member. Now, the furthest tip or possible sighting was a sighting called in supposedly of Mason all the way down in Argentina. A Twitter user commented on the Mason's Army and Friends Twitter account. Well, I guess it's the X account formerly known as Twitter. So yeah, it's a Twitter account. For me, it's probably always going to be Twitter. But this person made the claim that Mason was down in Argentina. Now, this would be a hard travel for Mason since he had no identification with him and he didn't have a passport. But I suppose, I mean, anything is possible. He might have been able to get down there. I don't know. The next sighting isn't exactly a personal sighting of Mason, but there was a YouTube channel that was created under the channel name of Mason Smith. And it was with Mason being spelled the same way that Mason spelled his name, which is M-A-C-I-N. So not a super common way to spell it. Now, the last update on this channel was roughly around 2019. There are only two videos posted on the channel, with both of them being gaming videos, which was one of Mason's big loves and hobbies. But outside of the two gaming videos, there was never any other type of interaction or confirmation. On one of the gaming videos, there are many comments, and I mean a lot of comments posted in the comment section, asking if this person was in fact Mason Smith posting the videos. But there's never been a reply to the questions, you know, posted inquiring if the person was Mason. So we don't know who that person was. It could have just been a complete asshole that knew Mason was a missing person and put the name up there just to try to get views or attention or whatever the reason you would do something like that. Or may I mean, maybe it was Mason. I don't know. My guess would be probably not, though. So despite all of these potential sightings, nothing concrete has ever come from them. In fact, several of the sightings were confirmed not to be Mason, which I guess is good, because if they're able to determine that it's not Mason, they can then focus their search on places that Mason could be, and not on places that he was confirmed not to be. So if he isn't at Panda Express or in California, he's not in Utah, Arizona, or anywhere in South America, then where is Mason Smith? There are six pretty accepted theories about what could have happened to Mason Smith. Some are definitely plausible, in my opinion, and some seem a lot less likely. So I'm going to read all six theories from the Finding Mason Smith blog and then discuss the likelihood that they may or may not have happened. Now, this is all strictly according to my opinion. So theory one, a depressed Mason throws himself in the river or off of a cliff. Now, this theory has the support of at least one local reporter and another that is familiar with the Smith family. For whatever reason, this theory seems to be a relatively popular theory. Now, I don't know what local reporter specifically backs this theory and the reasoning that they do so. I can see this being plausible as Mason had had episodic depression in the past, previous suicidal ideation, but I don't know if he ever specifically threatened to jump off a cliff in the literal sense and not just, 
oh my God, you see that cliff right there? I literally want to throw myself right off of it. I've had the worst day ever, you know, just something along those lines. Or to even like up the dramatics after having a horrible day, say to someone, oh, hey, you see that water right there? Yeah, I can't swim. Why don't you just go ahead, toss me in there and turn around and just walk away like nothing happened because this is where I am right now. This is the place that my mind and my spirit are in at this moment because I am just done with today. So obviously what I just said, those examples, they're not serious threats or ideations. That was just a dramatic overreaction to a very bad day. And yes, I have said those exact words before. That is how I handle my stress. But anyone who has gone through their teenage years or you know raised a teenager also, they know that the dramatics with them are very real. But they might say something like that and not be as likely to be completely joking because they don't have the life experience yet to know that bad days or rough patches, they're not the end of the world. Good days will eventually follow and it's the ups and downs that make life what it is, right? It teaches us the lessons and helps us to shape our character. So something like having your electronics taken away to a 17-year-old could really seem like the end of the world. And instead of realizing that being 18 is just on the horizon, is it possible he overreacted and made a very hasty, very dramatic, a very permanent decision? Yeah, I could see that possibly happening. There are multiple bodies of water that were close to the Smith home on Mason's Facebook page. His cover photo shows him on top of a nearby rock formation. But all these locations were apparently searched and no sign of Mason has ever been found near them. Now, as far as the second person that was mentioned in this theory, it sounds like they're also a reporter. And I'm not sure what exactly being familiar with the Smith family entails exactly. Are they a relative? Are they a close friend? How long have they known the Smith family? And when they say Smith family, is it the parents that they're referencing? One of the siblings, a second cousin twice removed? I would need more context behind that. But I do think this theory could be, unfortunately, a pretty plausible one. Theory two, a distraught Mason runs away only to end up being trafficked. Now, like many places around the country, there are registered sex offenders that were living nearby Mason's home. However, I don't see a lot of plausibility in this one. Is it possible? Yeah, I mean, it could be. Maybe someone saw Mason and gained his trust somehow and then offered to give him a place to stay or to help him in some manner. Maybe even offered to drive him to California and he trusted the wrong person. There were registered sex offenders in the area. Now, this one is possible, but I don't know how plausible it is. So theory number three is that Mason commits suicide in his bedroom and his parents cover it up. Now, at least one person who is known to be close to the case believes that this is what happened. So when I first read this theory, I thought that it seemed super far-fetched and incredibly unlikely. But as I thought about it more, this theory did start to grow on me some. But I do have some questions regarding this also, though. Would the parents cover up a suicide? Let's go with the theory that perhaps there was longstanding abuse from Darren towards Mason. Were they afraid that the abuse would be found out? Or taking it even a bit further, 
What if Darren and Mason had gotten into a physical argument when he went to Mason's room around 1 to 1.30 a.m.? And he sees Mason on the laptop when he wasn't supposed to be. And Darren reacts physically, leaving marks, bruises, or further injuring Mason. And after Darren went back to bed, a distraught Mason dies from self-infliction. The parents find him, maybe not even realizing it was self-infliction, right? Depending on the method, pills or an OD, probably wouldn't be immediately obvious. And Darren panics, thinking that he caused the fatal injury to Mason, and he fakes the runaway and the whole scenario. Or, running off a similar scenario, it was obvious that Mason had a self-inflicted injury, and because of prior abuse or even a physical altercation earlier in that morning, they were afraid that they wouldn't be believed. And they panicked, created the runaway story with Mason not getting off the bus, in order to give themselves more time and be able to dispose of Mason's body. Now, a couple other follow-ups to some points made in that theory. Did the backyard show any signs of disruption? Was the backyard ever searched or had cadaver dogs been brought in? Because Darren was supposed to have been working in the backyard doing yard work all day that day. And if he did take Mason's body to Las Vegas, where did he keep the body at until then? Now, one issue I do have with this theory is that there is no known history of abuse by Darren with the other kids or to Tracy. So does that mean that there was an abuse? I mean, no, of course not. Could there have been? Yeah, sure. But they had six kids. So I would think that surely at this point, one of the kids would have said something about being abused or someone along the course of the six kids' life, a teacher, a doctor, a friend a friend's parent, a coach, someone would have taken notice. So based off of zero previous history of abuse, I'd say this one is probably not super probable. Possible, yes, but not probable. So theory four, Mason runs away to escape his overbearing parents and starts a new life. I do think that this could be the most likely scenario. Now, is it possible that Mason ran away to start a new life and something either accidental, elemental, or through bad intentions by a bad person caused Mason's death? I think that is incredibly possible. I'd even say it's possible Mason ran away and realizing he couldn't really make it on his own and faced with the thought of having to go back home dies by self-infliction. One thing that bothers me a bit, though, one of Mason's previous runaway attempts in Canada, this happened a few years before, he packed a bag, he put food in it, he brought a sleeping bag, and he brought resumes. He thought enough to bring resumes. He was thinking about his future. But on this particular runaway, He took nothing with him. So why not? If he planned on being out on his own, would he go out completely unprepared, you know, completely unready? He hadn't before. So why would he now? Unless when he left, he planned on self-infliction. So in his mind, he didn't need to take anything with him. So theory number five. 
Mason's father loses his cool and kills Mason by accident. Now, contrary to what the parents said, that there was no argument that led up to Mason's disappearance. A family member kind of contradicts that and claimed in a public statement that the note that Mason had left behind in the wallet did in fact reference an argument. But whether or not it was a recent argument, when it happened, what it was about, we don't know. And really, we don't know if that argument that I guess was referenced was the reason or a contributing factor into why Mason ran away to begin with. But I do want to talk about the note. I have always wondered what the contents of the note was that the parents found in the wallet. So if the note referenced an argument, again, which argument? Do we know how old the note was? Was there a date on it? Is there anything in the note that could help to date it somehow? Did it reference anything that happened, you know, recently? Was it something that happened six months ago? We don't really know anything about this note. And again, you know, to reiterate, there was no prior history of violence. So is it possible that violence happened and it resulted in Mason being injured or killed accidentally? I mean, yeah, sure. I think it is possible. But is it probable? I don't know. I think all of these theories do have a level of possibility to them, except for this last theory. And that is theory number six. Mason's father kills Mason to avoid paying for college. Now, this theory, I just think this is really, I don't know. I think it's a dumb theory, honestly. If Mason was an only child and they had massive money problems, I don't know. I still don't think that I would buy into this theory. But one thing that I do believe is that the Smiths were not happy in their relationship and that they were waiting for Mason to graduate, to be self-sufficient and move out. I think that's possibly why Darren was pushing Mason so hard to get his driver's license. They wanted to get divorced and they didn't want to get divorced without Mason being moved out, self-sufficient and pretty independent on his own. And after 30 years of marriage, Darren and Tracy did finalize their divorce in May of 2018. Now, obviously, these are not the only theories, but I do think that they categorize the main thoughts or assumptions pretty well. But unless we find Mason's body or he comes forward, short of that, I don't know that we will ever know what happened to Mason. And maybe that's what Mason wanted. This is a really hard case to read. There are so many possibilities, like viable possibilities. And each theory, you can find something that makes sense in almost all of them. But even in the crazy college theory, there was still the part about the marriage that I think was 100% accurate. I do agree with the police on one level, though. I do think that Darren and Tracy know more than they're saying. Now, I don't know that I think I mean that they know what happened to Mason necessarily, but maybe they aren't telling the whole truth about the fight, even if it's just to avoid looking bad or looking worse in the media or to the public. Or possibly to even avoid more suspicion. I also think it's possible that maybe one parent knows more than the other. Now, again, 
I don't know what I think they know, but I do think they know more about something than what they are saying. Mason's disappearance has garnered international attention from a hundred different countries. There's a Facebook group dedicated to finding Mason with tens of thousands of followers. The page also focuses on finding others who are missing. Friends and families can post a missing person's picture and other details to help spread the word about their missing loved one's case. But more importantly, the people on the page, Mason's family, friends, and supporters, they want him to know that he's loved, that people do care, and that everyone matters. Now, every year around the anniversary of Mason's disappearance, family and supporters plan a search, a day of prayer, or another similar activity in Mason's honor. In April of 2017, Mason was featured on an episode of the docu-series Disappeared on Investigation Discovery. The name of the episode is The Silent Son. Mason is also listed on the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's website. And Mason is one of 27 cases involving both children and adults that are still missing in the state of Utah. A lot of Mason supporters have shifted their focus to raising awareness on the mental health issues that often affect the loved ones of the missing and the deceased. So what happened to Mason? Honestly, I don't think anybody knows. The police are no closer to knowing or figuring out what happened to Mason. And according to Darren, he's at a loss for what happened to his son. He says, I have no idea what happened to Mason. At first I thought, okay, we're going to find him close by. But as more time went on, I started thinking maybe something really horrible did happen to him. Darren has been very vocal about his belief that his son is no longer alive. But Tracy had a different outlook. She says she's never going to give up on Mason. But that being said, September of 2018, the family conducted what they called the last search for Mason saying it was time for them to move on. May 27th, 2021, ABC4 Utah reported that Tracy now believes Mason is dead. Tracy finally stopped paying for Mason's cell phone, and she had kept that phone on for years, thinking it was the only phone number that Mason would have memorized. So if he needed to reach out to someone, it would be on that phone number, which is, that's heartbreaking. It really is. Now, personally, and as a mother, I do feel some type of way about this, though. I have never been in the position that Darren and Tracy have been as far as my child being missing. And and I thank God for that, right? And I think that I understand the need to somewhat move on if you can't get closure. Sitting in your grief is not healthy, and you have to come to terms with the fact that you might never see your child again. And I cannot imagine what that is like. I can't. The thought of not seeing one of my children again for the rest of my life, on top of not knowing what happened to them, it's honestly too awful for my mind to grasp and process. I, I can't even begin to imagine that. Now, that said, I don't think I could ever stop looking for my child. Actually, you know what? I know I couldn't. Which makes me wonder if they, being Darren and Tracy, if they gave up after just three years, 
because they know that there's no Mason to find. Three years in the grand scheme of things, it's not a long time. Alicia Navarro just showed up after four years. Amanda Berry, Michelle Knight, Gina DeJesus, they were found after 10 years. J.C. Dugard, she was found after 18 years. And I do understand that that is not the norm for these type of cases. But my point is, people, they are found. And three years is not that long to give up searching. If Mason is no longer alive, then his remains are somewhere. And I would have to find them and bury them properly. Mason's case is still considered active, according to the police department, but detectives are not investigating on their own. They're only investigating new tips that they're receiving. They say that all previous tips have been exhausted. Now, the police say from the very beginning, they have overturned every stone. They have researched every lead that they were given, and they have exhausted all of the leads and the tips that have come in. So right now, yes, it's open, but again, no one's actively pursuing anything. We are looking at all aspects of what possibly could have happened to Mason. It could be a crime. It could be a murder investigation. It could be a missing person. Our job as police officers is to find out what happened to him and not narrow it down to one thing. It's a difficult case and it's frustrating. Absolutely. And that was per the... St. George Police Department when asked about Mason's case. But as a devil's advocate, is it possible that the reason this case isn't solved is due to incompetence on part of the police department? The Finding Mason Smith blog raises a lot of questions about the police work or lack of police work in this case. I'm going to read the blog from the site that discusses the competence or the type of work that the police department put in. So I'm going to read that now. We have obtained a copy of the runaway juvenile missing person report in the Mason Smith case. St. George Police Department responded to our Government Records Access Management Act request. The document is a five-page redacted PDF costing $2. We reviewed the information in an effort to better understand the investigation. Like many in the public, we have serious concerns about the validity of the police investigation. How is it that this case has been allowed to go cold? Why are so many interested in sweeping this case under the rug? Some say fear and intimidation has caused the public to remain quiet. What's with Mason's Army Facebook group, rarely even mentioning Mason Smith? If that doesn't raise suspicion, nothing will. Why were investigators so slow to suspect the parents? How could it take six days to find a suicide note? That's got to be a record. Then there's the timeline that clearly doesn't add up. We noticed a number of misspellings in the initial police report and subsequent investigation narrative. For example, the word juvenile is misspelled in one instance. Smith is misspelled in another. Darren Smith's first name is misspelled in three. That's three out of seven mentions or 42.8% of the time. But who's counting, right? Since Darren Smith is the complainant and father of the missing juvenile, it seems St. George police would want to get his name correct. 
So it's little errors such as these that may seem insignificant at first, but they reinforce suspicions that the St. George Police Department bungled the investigation from the start. The only way this case is going to be solved is for people like us to begin to ask questions. Tracy doesn't think the police did a very good job with the investigation either. Tracy says that she hopes, if anything good, comes from her son's disappearance. It's that she believes St. George police have improved how they have investigated missing persons cases since Mason's disappearance. She believes that police missed opportunities to collect evidence in the early part of the investigation, mainly because of just inexperience. Tracy also said at the time, she and her then-husband, Mason's dad, Darren, they didn't know what to do, and they weren't getting any guidance from any of the authorities. She says, we really felt alone at the get-go. We were walking blind. And I know we have been criticized a lot for, why didn't you do this, and this, and this, within the first couple of days? Well, Tracy said, you're in shock, and you're not sure if your teen's going to walk in the door that night, or maybe even the next morning. You can't predict that it would go on for days and days and months, and now we're into years. Keith Bratt, Tracy's brother and Mason's uncle, he kind of stands behind the suicide theory. Actually, not kind of. He does. He he's definitely subscribes to that theory. And he made a Facebook post in December of 2021. And his post said, Mason suffered from depression. He had tried to commit suicide when he was 15 and was hospitalized during this time. Mason felt he was different and felt he did not fit in. I have read the note he left and it is heartbreaking. I have always felt that Mason committed suicide, but I have always wanted answers. And if that is what happened, a proper resting place for him is, you know, needs to happen. And also just the peace of knowing. Now, that said, I do have some questions about this investigation. Now, I have a lot of questions with this case. And the Finding Mason Smith blog has compiled a list of questions that are titled, you know, questions investigators must consider. And they are fantastic questions. Some of them I had thought of. Some of them didn't even cross my mind. So I did pick out some of the ones that I felt were most relevant or most important. And I do want to go over those now. So the first question was, why would parents of a child with a history of severe depression leading to previous hospitalization take away a cell phone, laptop, and internet access knowing that his grades were brought back up because that was the agreement between Mason and his mother? Now, I understand the line of thinking here, but at some point, you have to discipline your child if they're not listening to you. And maybe that was the only thing that had gotten him to get back on point in the future. Like that was the way that they could get Mason's attention. Now, I don't know if they had tried anything prior to taking his stuff away or if they jumped straight to taking away the super important items. That I don't know. But I do believe that you have to discipline them somehow. And if this is what worked, I mean, that might have been what they felt like was their only option or at a minimum, the most effective option. Would a mental health therapist with a bachelor's degree in behavioral sciences not know that confiscating a teenager's cell phone would be like taking away their identity? Okay, I didn't know that Tracy was a mental health therapist. 
I know it only lists a bachelor's degree in behavioral sciences, but I do believe to be a licensed therapist of any kind in the United States, you need to hold a master's degree. I might be wrong, but I don't think so. I believe you have to hold a master's degree. So I'm not super certain what exactly Tracy's job actually is. I did look and I couldn't find anything that even brought up her profession other than the Finding Mason Smith blog. So I'm not sure 100% what it is exactly she does. But if she is a mental health professional, maybe that's not the advice that she would have given her patients or clients. But because it's her own child, this was just the avenue she opted to go down. I mean, to me, it's kind of like that saying where they say that a surgeon shouldn't operate on their own child or family because they can't be unbiased. So maybe that was the same for Tracy. She couldn't be unbiased because it was her child and not a client. So maybe she wasn't looking at it the way that she would look at it if it were another family and she was giving them advice or guidance on how to handle the behavior issues in their family. Now, this question I definitely found interesting. What percentage of parents at Desert Hills High School paid for their son or daughter's 2016 graduation set by September 2nd? Now, keep in mind, this was 266 days in advance of graduation. I did find this very weird. Why did she need to pay that day? Unless she was doing it as an excuse to see if Mason was at school. Although, I mean, she doesn't need an excuse. She's his mom, so she could just call. Unless maybe she didn't want to direct a lot of attention towards Mason being missing at that point. Or maybe, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's something as simple as she just wanted to feel close to her son in that moment somehow. And this was just how she chose to do it. Why put the date that Mason went missing on the dedication bench as if it were a date of death? So they had 4-7-1998 through 9-1-2015. I did found this to be odd as well, although the whole family seems to be on board with the thought that Mason died of self-infliction. So I guess based on that thought, even though there is literally no evidence pointing to this at all, I guess I could maybe sort of see that. But in my opinion, it also gives the indication that they know that Mason has passed. So that would prevent people from still looking for him or spreading, you know, the information about him or anything like that. So I don't know that that's super productive. Maybe that wasn't the point to be productive. I don't know. Why does Mason's mother consider the words I'm done? To mean I'm going to hurt myself or I'm going to commit suicide and not just I'm out of here like I'm done with you. I'm guessing based off of their self-reporting of Mason's previous mental health issues, they're just making the assumption that that's what he meant unless there are other things in the note that imply or directly reference him dying, wanting to die, you know, him wanting to self-inflict injury anything like that. Again, the contents of the note, the full note, have never been released. So possibly there's other indicators in there that support the I'm done, meaning that it's not just I'm done with you, but I'm done with life in general. Now, this next one is definitely one 
that I would want to know information about. Did Darren's brother, Joey McFarland Smith, a.k.a. Jay McFarland, did he travel with Darren to Las Vegas to search for Mason, or did he meet Darren in Las Vegas? So this I definitely want to know. What was the details of the Las Vegas trip? How did this go down? Where was the uncle living at the time? I mean, if it was my sister and my nephew, I would roll to Vegas to look for him for sure. I mean, there would be no hesitation in that. So I don't think it's necessarily weird that the uncle went with Darren to look for Mason. Just the details around the entire trip are kind of questionable and suspect. Now, the next couple questions are kind of tied into the Las Vegas trip as well. So we're going to kind of do them both together. When Darren left to Las Vegas to look for Mason, did Tracy ever look inside Darren's 2006 Toyota Tundra double cab truck? Now, this is kind of an eerie question, but I think a really good one. What, if anything, was in the truck? Is that why he went to Vegas? Even after it was determined that the kid holding the Vegas sign was not Mason. And Mason always talked about going to California, not to Nevada. Also, when Darren was searching for Mason in Las Vegas, did he attend the Sabacon Anime Convention at Alexis Park Resort? Yeah, I would definitely want to know a list of places that Darren searched while he was in Las Vegas. Obviously, an anime convention would definitely be up Mason's alley. But again, he wanted to go to California. He wanted to be on the beach, not in Vegas. So I would definitely want to know where where did he go? And he was there for quite some time, not just a couple days. So where all did he look and why? What was the the reasoning behind the places that he went to? Obviously, the anime convention would have been a great place to look. But I don't know if he even knew that there was a convention going on or if he did, if he went. There's not been anything that suggests that he did. So the next two questions are sort of the same question. Where did Darren stay while searching for Mason in Las Vegas? And where did Darren's brother Joey McFarland Smith or the Jay McFarland. Where did he stay when they were in Vegas searching for Mason? So basically, yeah, where were the brothers staying? What were they doing? Where were they at while they were in Vegas searching for Mason? I mean, this I would definitely want to know, but it doesn't seem that any information about their Vegas search for Mason was made public or maybe they didn't give any. I don't know if there's any type of actual physical or electronic documentation of anything that happened while they were in Vegas. I mean, surely there would have to be some sort of documentation about where they stayed, right? If they stayed at a hotel. But other than that, what were they doing in Vegas that whole time? Other than just, you know, the very vague searching, right? Now, this one... This is a question. Why did Tracy say Mason's room was locked when she came home from work early on September 1st, 2015? If Darren says he went into Mason's room earlier and was able to get Mason's laptop power cord to see what Mason was looking at online. Now this question, this is an example of the type of thing that caused a lot of suspicion with the parents. Because in my opinion, like this is a direct contradiction. 
And I honestly wonder if the police called them on this or if they even caught the inconsistency. But in my mind, this is a big, big discrepancy. Especially if Darren is saying that he went in and took the power cord from Mason's bedroom after he went to school and before he went to the gym. How would you have time to do that and pick the lock? And if it was unlocked, why would Darren lock it when he left? So I think there's a lot of of questions that need to be answered around the locking of the bedroom door and with Darren's morning timeline. Why was the Help Find Mason Smith Facebook group morphed into a generic missing persons group instead of still focusing solely on finding Mason? Well, I'm guessing since the family stopped looking after just three years, why would they continue the search on Mason's page? Maybe they wanted to focus on other people so no one questions Mason's disappearance anymore. Or maybe they really think that Mason is no longer alive and they just want to help other families who are missing their loved ones or their children. But even if that's the case, Mason's body has never been found. So wouldn't they want to find it? Like, wouldn't they want people to still be aware or to search for Mason? Wouldn't they want to still be able to bring him home and bury him properly? I don't know. Did Mason really go missing? on the morning of September 1st, 2015? Or did he instead go missing on August 31st, 2015, as some people suspect? Honestly, I don't know if we will ever know the truth about what happened to Mason. Even if he has passed and they find his body, I doubt they would even be able to determine his exact time of death, possibly not even the manner of death, you know, how he died especially with it being, you know, 12 hours or less than 12 hours between when people think Darren might have possibly injured Mason and when they had reported their last known contact with their son. So there's not a big time gap in between. Did Darren's yard work the day that Mason reportedly went missing include any type of digging? Now, this is something that I never really considered. If he injured or killed Mason, would he bury him or any evidence in their own backyard? Maybe. If he was planning on keeping it there just very temporarily, like waiting to take it to Vegas, maybe, in order to dispose of it. And I'm not suggesting that any digging would be to hide Mason. It could be something small that they considered evidence or honestly something that they just didn't want to show police or media or have it found and made public. Maybe not even necessarily something having to do with, you know, an injury to Mason or a death, just something that they felt maybe made them look bad and they just didn't want it to be handed over to police or made public just so that people didn't look at them a certain way. And finally, what date was the Word document created that was later found on Mason's laptop where he expressed an interest in trying to hurt himself? Well, we know Mason had a history of episodic depression and suicidal ideation. So I think it's very possible that the Word document was an older document. I would be interested to see the contents of what the document had in it, like what it said, and how it compares to the note that they found in Mason's wallet. That I definitely would want to know. And I would also want to know if they ever did like a handwriting comparison 
just to confirm that Mason actually was the author of that note because it was found so many days past when they supposedly searched through the room, went through the wallet. I mean, it was almost a week. I believe it was six days. So I would definitely want to confirm that the note actually came from Mason himself. And I'm not sure if that actually ever happened. I couldn't find that. So that is all the information that I have for this case. And this is a tough one. There are so many possibilities that I think are super plausible that definitely could have happened. And I definitely think something is up with the parents, for sure. But I'm kind of torn as to whether I think it's just something small and all they're trying to do is protect their reputation or if it's something much worse, like hiding what actually happened to Mason. I don't know that I'm convinced that Mason died by either self-infliction or via injury from the parents or the father. I think that it is a very real possibility that Mason is out there somewhere just kind of living his life away from his family. And he just, he doesn't want to be found. Mason was born April 7th, 1998. He has blonde hair, blue eyes, is six foot four, and at the time of his disappearance was 200 pounds. Mason was last seen wearing black Nike sneakers with blue soles and green eyelets and accents. Now, I don't know if they know that because the shoes were missing and it was just a process of elimination type of thing. I don't know if the neighbor who thinks they saw him that day maybe saw him wearing those shoes. I do know that the parents say they never physically saw Mason that morning. So how do they know that he had those particular shoes on? I actually don't have the answers for those questions, but that is listed as the last known shoes that he was known to be wearing when he went missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Mason Smith, please contact the St. George Police Department at 435-627-4300 or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-843-5678. Thank you for joining me for another Mystery Monday episode. Every Monday, I upload a new episode focusing on a missing persons case or an unsolved mystery case. Every other Saturday is a solved Saturday case where I focus on a solved true crime case that has already had a legal resolution or is currently going through the judicial system or appeals process. On the first of every month is a History's Mysteries episode, and that focuses on a true crime event from history that may or may not be solved. So be sure to follow me so you don't miss an episode. Share, comment, leave me a rating, all the categories. Thank you for being here and have a great day.